Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on The Basic Podcast, where you can hear all of our latest messages, interviews, and more. Basic is a college and young adult ministry focused on uniting people to join in Jesus' work. To keep up with what's happening in our community, take a moment to follow us at Basic Worship or explore our website, basicworship.org. We hope you enjoy this episode of our podcast and that it helps you take a next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the Basic Podcast. My name is Andrew Sladke. And I'm Carter Moore. And uh, we're here today talking with Preston Taylor, who's been a leader in our community. Um, he's the director right now of ha- the Hail Mary Project, which is an after-school program um, that's sports-based for students who are considered at risk to, to provide some mentorship and leadership for them. Um, and Preston taught actually in our series that we just did at Basic for the last few weeks called Can We Talk? Um, a conversation on race and faith. And he had a really great teaching. And actually, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard that teaching, I say just pause right here, go back two episodes and, and listen to Preston's story and his teaching because it's incredible. Um, but we're here to just continue that conversation with him today. And so we're really excited to hear more about his story and his experience with, with racism as it relates to faith and then maybe some actionable steps that we can all take. Yeah, I appreciate y'all having me yeah. and invite me in. That was awesome. awesome. Thanks for being here with yeah. us, Preston. Yeah, you're welcome. And I, I just want to acknowledge the uh, the reality that I'm I'm a white man, and this is a podcast, so you can't see me. Mm-hmm. And Andrew is a white man, and Preston is a black man. Is a black? I am a black man, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel like is somewhat important in this conversation, just to acknowledge that. Yep. So right. th- <clears throat> thanks for being here with us. And I You're I would welcome. say even go back three episodes and right. start by listening to Laura's Laura Hoy talk Laura Hoy. was awesome. Oh, yeah, man. She nailed it. And Laura's a white woman who has been wrestling with the, some of these issues we're going to talk about for many years uh, and has a lot of wisdom and a lot to offer yeah, to she, this conversation. Yeah, right? She has a really great story. Um, and the fact that it took her 40 years of kind of being blind and, and then once she started actually opening up her mind to see the world as it was, I like how she used the clip mm-hmm. from the matrix and how, once you take that pill and you choose to see the world as it is, how you can never, you know, go back to mm-hmm. viewing it the way you did. And I just think that it's amazing for her at that age to see that and to, you know, choose to take steps towards racial reconciliation and uh, restorative justice. Right on. So a big part of what we like to share in our community is is people's stories. And so I thought maybe we'd start there. And Preston, maybe just tell us a little bit about some of your own story. Uh, maybe kind of a little bit of your growing up. You had a little bit of a different experience than me and then Andrew. You know, I'm a son of a Cedar Falls cop mm. here and, and a white man. And mm-hmm. you grew up in Waterloo, a black man on the other side of, of that. So maybe talk a little bit, some of your growing up and how you actually experienced, personally experienced racism in your life. So growing up, growing up was good. Uh, I'm the middle child. So I, I suffered from the middle child syndrome. <laughs> um, I got, I have an older brother and a, and a younger sister and I have a little brother, but my mom, she had three kids. And for the first couple years, um, I say my mom got married when I was about two and she stayed married until 
I was maybe eight, nine years old. And my uh, stepdad at the time, he worked construction. So he was always on the road and he was the main enforcer. So when he came home and, you know, he was the enforcer. Mm. So that's kind of the role that he played. And I don't really remember having a close relationship with him, but I just knew he was always present. Um, but I seen, you know, my mom, she worked hard. Uh, she worked a couple jobs at a time just to provide, especially um, after she had got divorced. And I think she really, especially for me, and, and it's, it always amazes me when I think about how different me, my brother, and my sisters are. Um, I was probably the one that was the most adventurous. And I say adventurous because on the side of adventure lies like risk and <laughs> maybe danger. Yep. And I tend to always walk that line, um, even as a kid. And because I was more curious and adventurous than my brother or my sister, I tended to get into a lot of things that I had no business getting into. But also, um, because I was that kid, I also suffered um, from abuse as well, physical abuse. My, my, my great auntie, a couple of them, they were all born and raised in Mississippi. So my mom was born in Mississippi. So I'm first generation Iowan. Um, I was born here, my siblings were born here, but uh, my mom and a lot of my other relatives were born down south. And uh, my aunties, they were they were cut from that from a different cloth mm -hmm. where it was more uh, punishment and enforcement, and they believed in beatings. So because I was that kid, I got um, I got spanked a lot, which I realize now as an adult was abuse. So it, it was tough. Um, and some of the, the, the littlest stuff, I, I was probably like the sneak in the refrigerator at night kid, getting <laughs> snacks, getting juice or water. I'm still that kid. <laughs> right? You know? <laughs> I'm still that kid too. Um, and like one, there were a lot of legit things that I actually got punished for. So just to give you an idea of like my adventure slash risk. I remember I was probably about seven or eight years old and it's the 4th of July. I'm a pyromaniac. I don't know what it was about fire, but I was just a pyromaniac. So anytime I got matches, I used to light matches and just watch them burn. And somewhere in my mind, I didn't think I wasn't smart enough to blow it out before it started burning my fingers. So I, I will always end up dropping them. And of course, on the carpet, you can't hide mm -hmm. a burn mark on the carpet. So my mom, she knew this about me. And on top of all the countless amounts of spankings that I got as a kid for this very thing, I still continue to do it. So I'm seven, eight years old. It's the 4th of July. Around that time, I'm on punishment. And I can't leave my room for something that I did. I don't know what I did, but I had this ingenious idea that I would do a fireworks show in my bedroom. I realized that the smoke <laughs> from the fireworks would be in the house. So I said, I'll put it in the window. So I got a ton of black cats and all these other different fireworks that pop. And I put them in my cardboard crayon box in the window, I'm talking about this box was full and I linked them all together just thinking they're going to pop off 
you know, and make this great display and boom, it was going to be over. My mom was gone. Clearly she wouldn't know the smell would be out of the house about time she gets home. And it didn't go anything like that. I lit it. It popped. And then it popped. And then it caught the curtain on fire and almost oh burnt gosh. the house down. <laughs> oh, so man. that was the type of stuff that I did. And I understand my mom's concern. Um, <laughs> and then it was acts like that, that with time, as I got older, just kind of uh, spir- spiraled out of control. And it just led to doing bigger things. And I think for me as a kid, realizing that this is something that I enjoy doing. It's something that I found pleasure in, like the adventure, not necessarily like the things that I've did. Um, I just continued to do it, but because I was punished in a severe way for it, what it did was it just, it, it, it made me, uh, it made me suppress my anger and my feelings inside. And I became this, you know, angry, aggressive non-emotional child um and it really made me lack emotion empathy and compassion for people so and i started running away from home because i didn't want to deal with the abuse anymore and i felt once i got old enough and i had options like i didn't have to stay at home i didn't have to deal with it um i started running away from home and i say the first time i ran away from home was maybe 11. And I remember having to come back and knock on the door. And I remember my mom's face and she bawled like a baby. And, mm. you know, she she was so worried and so concerned. And I cried too. I did. But, you know, after the third, fourth, fifth time, I was just kind of emotionally numb to it. And that's how I kind of got into the street lives and started hanging out with people who are affiliated with gangs and smoking weed and drinking. And, um, you know, because of that lifestyle, I ended up making a lot of bad choices and decisions, which got me in trouble with the law enforcement in Waterloo. And um, before you know it, they knew who I was. Um, I went to a lot of different detention centers um, I went to youth shelters. My sixth grade year was the first year I went to my res- first residential facility. Um, that was an incident within itself. And, you know, from that point on, it just kind of, I spiraled out of control. And, you know, I f- found myself stealing cars and, you know, stealing from the store. And I had a lot of thefts. And then I started selling drugs because I was young. I couldn't work a job. And um, I was pretty much on the streets. I, I went to school only because I had to, but I didn't really pay that much attention because I didn't think school was the way. And, um, you know, by the time I, I turned 17, I, I had been to, well, about the time I turned 15, I had been to three different residential facilities and um, I had an incident. It was the weekend. And me and some of my friends had a, a a shootout with a rival gang on the east side of Waterloo. And I didn't get caught for it. But when I went to school the next day, you know, everybody kind of knew what happened. And the police were investigating it. Of course, people called the police. And, you know, I went to school 
because I didn't get caught and I didn't think nothing of it. But one of the guys that was involved, we got into an altercation and got into a fight at school. And that's when I got pulled into the D.A.R.E. office. And although they couldn't pinpoint me on what happened or they didn't find any guns or, you know, anything like that. And that was by far probably one of the scariest things that I experienced in my life um, because I realized that I could have died at that time. And as much as it was exciting and, you know, like a complete gen um, adrenaline rush for me, um, it could have easily went, you know, sour and I could have hurt somebody else or killed somebody else or I could have been killed. And here you have a, a group of kids um, making bad decisions and um, living life like it's the movies or like in the rap videos or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, so I went to court. Um, they sent me to the detention center. And when I went to court that day, I knew, well, I thought in my mind that they were going to send me home. And, you know, by this time, my mom, she's stressed out out of all get out. She's tried any and everything she could do to, you know, protect me. And my mom, she was solid. She, she worked, she worked hard. She worked for everything she wanted. Um, you know, she, always we always had a roof over our head food on the table clothes on our back um you know she always had a car she carried herself well my mom you know she wasn't a drinker she wasn't a smoker she wasn't a partier um so what i learned and what i experienced was something that i didn't see at home the only thing that i can take from that is just the abuse that i experienced kind of led me out of the home because i felt like i wasn't being heard or i wasn't being seen and that's what led me to that lifestyle. But so I'm 15, I'm a freshman, I'm going to East High. I'm sitting before the judge and I remember the judge saying, um, well, uh, Mrs. Taylor, um, we got two options. You know, Preston can either go home because we sent him to every place that he can possibly go in Iowa. Um, as a juvenile, and he's exhausted uh, all those places. Um, or we can send him to the state training school for boys in Eldora until he turns 18, um, because technically he's a, a menace to society and we don't know how else to help him. And it was, I'm just in there thinking I won, like, yeah, I'm gonna come home. No, my mom was like, lock them up, send them. And I was so hurt. I could not believe my mom did that. And I understand now why she did. But at the time, I just couldn't for the life of me get it. And, I, you know, I held a lot of feelings of unforgiveness and uh, hate towards my mom um, for that. So I went to the state training school for boys um, in Eldora for a few years and um, I ended up getting my GD and going to college in Ottumwa and I studied computer technology and I did good for a while, but still same situation, being down there, not knowing anybody young, I couldn't really work a job. Um, I'm going to school full time and of course you attract who you are. So as I started getting out in the community, I start hanging around people who use drugs and sold drugs, kind of like I did when I was in Waterloo. And uh, me being an opportunist and being on that side of a venture, 
I seen an opportunity to make money, so I started selling drugs in the Tongwa, and it ended pretty bad. Um, a year later, right before I turned 17, I was arrested, and I was facing 65 years in prison as a 17-year-old for random drug charges. And, um, you know, that was the moment that I really felt like my life ended. I didn't have any family. I didn't have any support. It ain't like my mom had bail money or money for a, a lawyer. And here I am, 17, facing all this time. Um, it was tough. Yeah. And m most people, that's just not their story or anywhere near that. So even just to sit back and take that in is a little bit overwhelming for some people probably. So let's go backwards just a little bit. Okay. Um, you grew up in East Waterloo. Yep. On the and, East side and the West side. We kind of lived on both sides. Yeah. Yep. And if someone's listening who doesn't, isn't familiar with Cedar Falls, Waterloo, I grew up in Cedar Falls and anytime someone brought up East Waterloo, there was, and this is part of the inherent systemic racism mm -hmm. and thoughts. There was an automatic thought or judgment about what happens in, in East Waterloo. And you've shared some of, some of your story talking about racism. When was the first time that you remember or some of the first experiences that you had with, with racism growing up in East Waterloo? I would say some of my first experiences early on was just as um, just as a kid, just being a young black male living in a, a neighborhood that they said w was known for uh, drug trafficking or something like that. Um, there were a lot of different times when me my cousins and maybe a group of friends would just get pulled over by the by the police and ask where we going what are we doing you know uh that sort of thing which i mean looking at it now stereotypes are strong and i think that's why a lot of the things are happening you know between uh, like racism and um, the police versus like the black community um, because there are those stereotypes. I would say that I probably was stereotyped and pulled over more just off the strength that I was a, a, a young black male in the neighborhood that the county or the city said was a known drug trafficking area. And um Obviously, gangs have different colors that they associate with. Um, and as a, a prior gang member, I did lean heavy towards my colors when it came to the way I dress. But I mean, this is Waterloo, Iowa, too. I don't know, like, what's that fine line between like we got evidence and we kind of know this is the traits versus, you know, we going out our way to uh, target black men in the community. And I think a lot of uh, officers are, you know, people kind of walk that line. Um, as far as 
me just being out and me being black, I could point to a lot of little different things that consciously I felt like you treated me different because of the color of my skin. Um, some of the most notable things that I've noticed was just the amount of service that people receive. I can walk in the store and because I'm a black man, um, people automatically see you, they size you up, they judge you. And they say, oh, he must not be a spender. Or he must not have a lot of money. So the mm -hmm. quality of service that I receive is a lot different, I feel, than my white counterparts. And you can kind of see that, how people treat you, how short people are with you, um, the amount of uh, questions that they ask you when you go into stores. Or you can walk in and people won't even say, hey, how you doing? Welcome. Mm, yeah. Is there anything I can help you with? We we went to the um, student athlete rally in March on Friday mm -hmm. on UNI's campus, and one of the student athletes, black man, he mentioned that he said, "I I'm not from here, but I want to go to Target and just have someone hold the door open or smile at me or mm -hmm. just treat me like everybody else." Right. And, and and it's the small things I, I, I've noticed. It's the small things that you don't really notice, but you notice. And not that I directly feel a lot of it. It's just that. Right. Because you can walk in and somebody else will hold the door and then you see white. So you think, oh, they holding the door for them because they, they're white. And and then when they see me walking up, they walk in themselves. Is it? because I'm black. So I think there's a lot of times where I've questioned mm. um, the amount of service that I received or lack thereof due to the fact that I was a black man. And it's that fine line, it's that gray, but I think in, when we look at the bigger picture of everything, it kind of points and looks like racism at its finest and and it's so subtle that most people don't even notice it or they don't even realize it mm -hmm. yeah what what do you think makes it so hard to even acknowledge or or realize like that that's a problem or you know today i feel like there's people who have a hard time even saying i i have racist tendencies or i am a racist or i you know, have have made comments in the past that have been that way. I think judgment, right? Because if you admit that you have made racist comments, that you do have a bias, perspectives, or opinions, that you are prejudiced when it comes to certain things, I think deep down inside, people feel like that automatically makes them a part of the current problem that's going on. Mm. So it's almost like, which I'm not that, that type of racist. That's not, I don't yeah, do that. Right, right, they right. do that. So therefore that's what racism looks like. Therefore I'm not racist because mm -hmm. I don't do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't want that. They don't want the guilt attached with right. the bigger problem by acknowledging personally, I mm -hmm. do have bias. I am, I have some racist right. thoughts and tendencies. Because, and it, well, it feels like it goes back to what Laura said about the red pill, blue pill. Like once you take that pill to kind of, realize or acknowledge like some reality in your world then you have to live with 
that new reality, right. right? Or you have to live with what the world really looks like versus what you maybe the story you tell yourself or the story that you've, you've right. been telling yourself. Because I believe two things happen once you acknowledge it. And I do feel like everyone has to examine themselves and ask themselves some those hard questions. Like, mm -hmm. am I, have I been, and how have I been more importantly and taking it away from, okay, well, I know I didn't mean this necessarily, but how does the next person view it? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't matter if you don't think you are, if you say or if you do some things and that's how you're perceived, then you have to own that and accept it. So I think once people realize it or they take responsibility for it, um, naturally as humans and especially as believers, you know, we want to reconcile that or we want to change it, right? Because that could be some sin in our lives. So to turn the other cheek means that now we have to actively engage and do something about this flaw or this thing called racism that we have. And it takes work. And a lot of people don't want to take that effort to put in that work to change mm -hmm. it. So after taking responsibility or after seeing it and accepting it, right, and admitting these things, you either move that way or you come into the truth and you deny it and you choose to remain ignorant because by denying it and saying, nope, I'm not racist, nope, I, I'm not biased, I don't have any prejudice, I don't have any of these different tendencies because I don't do that, right, then it almost takes away you having to take responsibility for the role that you play and what's currently going on. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to walk away than it is to stay and to fight and to change. Let that sit for a minute. Let that marinate. Take a deep breath here. Yeah, so Andrew kind of led down this path of why people individually are unwilling to acknowledge some of some of the stuff, this systemic racism, the personal individual bias, uh, and especially white people. Um, on a bigger level, because we talked about as believers, and and you know this is a Jesus based ministry, Jesus based podcast. Right, we're followers of Jesus. That's why this is so important to us. Um, one of the things that that Laura talked about in her teaching was if you if you follow Jesus, you have to be a part of the work of racial reconciliation. You have Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And I actually heard um, from people who, who heard that teaching that were dumbfounded by that. Can you maybe talk, and these are people in the church, so on, a, on an apathetic individual level, but like the bigger church, especially the Western American church, why are we so unwilling, apathetic, ignorant, scared to talk about it. I don't, I don't know what all the reasons are. I'm sure there's a lot, but why? Um, I think why Laura said that. So in the, as I examined God's whole plan and purpose to reconcile him to itself from, from the beginning after the fall, the whole point, um, and part of God's plan was to reconcile us to himself and, um, when we look at the, the the ministry of of Jesus Christ, that's why Christ came. Christ didn't come as a priest, as a Pharisee, 
or as any of the high leaders who held prestige and status in that day. And I thought that was important because the people who held those positions placed themselves above those who were considered at the bottom or everyday common folks or citizens, right? And when Jesus came, Jesus came for the oppressed, he came for the poor, he came for the widow, and he came to set the captives free. So when we look at those people that Jesus really ministered to, if we had to make a connection to what does that group of people look like today, it's not restricted to the black community, right? but in America, because the way it was set up from the foundation in America, that's where the biggest need is. That's mm. where the oppressed are. That's where the poor are. That's where uh, the widows are. And I believe that Jesus, if he was around today, would be speaking up on these issues because Jesus always stood up for those who didn't have a voice for whatever reason. So if you were a leper, if you had some type of illness or disease, if you were blind, if you, you know, were ostracized and cast off uh, in that time, just due to economic status or whatever, or if you were even a woman, mm -hmm. right? Um, Jesus stood up for those people. So I think the church has to ask a question like in my community and where we at, where is the need at? And not saying that there aren't probably provished white areas or there aren't, you know, different uh, ethnicities of people groups who need that attention. It's just with America and since the foundation, this has always been a problem. And that's why when we talk about social justice or racial, reconcil racial reconciliation or justice as a whole, we can't help but to look at the black community and help out and to chime in. And as churches, you know, no matter white, black or multi-ethnic churches, it doesn't matter. Like we have a, a, a obligation to serve the community and those who are in the biggest need. Yeah. I, I feel like something too, it's the same thing as, as an individual level, maybe kind of how you spoke before, like as a church, it might be hard to tackle that thing because but maybe you're it the means, church. right. Come it on. means, but it means admitting that like we've been doing it wrong. Right. right. And nobody and wants to do that. Right. 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 But yeah, that's a great point too. The people are the church. The, we the church. Not, yeah. yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think making it central back to like the person and individuals because after I became a believer, I inherited um, citizenship into heaven, but also like brotherhood too. So I'm not just um, away from God, like citizenship and adoption into, you know, back in those days met like I get full rights and access as if. I was, you know, the son of God himself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nowadays adoption doesn't necessarily mean the same or people kind of got away from the idea. So in context, looking at being adopted and being called a son of God, I got full access and rights to inheritance as if I was Jesus, right? And 
I think that's important to uh, recognize, um, especially today, because that means that the spirit of God lives inside me and church isn't just isn't within these four walls. Mm. Church is I am church. Right. Mm. And we come together as a body of believers to, you know, fellowship and to, you know, love one another and to uplift and encourage each other. So I think that if the church, if people can recognize that I'm the church, I take church with me everywhere I go because mm. the spirit of God lives inside me that I'm always can bear witness. I always can do that next right thing or that good deed, right? When I see somebody, when I hear something, um, because ultimately uh, I, I witness, right? To people about God and Jesus in my life and my life should bear witness to Jesus and God in my life. And if the only time I'm allowed to share that witnesses within the four walls that I miss out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's an important thing talking about that inheritance, that adoption into the family of God and people who don't follow Jesus. There's almost, you can almost have a, a bit of understanding for why they don't get it. But what, what happens inside of you when you're talking to people in the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, people who, follow the same Jesus, but yet when they, when someone says black lives matter, they get all twisted up and can't separate that big all lives matter from what you're talking about. Hundreds of years of racism that we're, we're not that far removed from. I think even in your teaching, right. you talked about a, a lynching that happened in the 1981 80s. was yeah. the last time the year a I was born man was lynched in America. We're not that far removed from it. We're not that far removed from it. So it drives me bonkers when people say racism doesn't exist. It only exists in the mind. And if you see it, if you choose to see it, then it'll exist. But if it, if you choose not to, then it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that goes back to once you come across this realization that is happening, I can either a choose to remain ignorant because I don't have to take responsibility and then I can deny all things that comes with taking responsibility or I take responsibility, I accept it. And then it almost forces you to change. So I feel like by not acknowledging that, right, that it still exists, we kind of really limit God's hand and what he wants to do um, in our lives. Right. Okay. Where do we go from here, Andrew? I feel like I'm just soaking things in. Right <laughs> yeah. Which and, is good. And that's part of it. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm almost 40. You're still a young a young buck, Andrew. A young lad, <laughs> 25. 26. 26. <laughs> One of the great characteristics of a Jesus follower should be that you're a learner and a listener. Right. And that's something I took away from this series. One of the things that was talked about by both you and Laura was perspective. Right. You know, and until you change your perspective, it's going to be hard for you to, to understand. So now you have perspective because of your story. Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew has a perspective because of where he grew up and what he experienced. Me as a son of a cop, uh, white man, I have my own perspective. But also, I was exposed to a lot of other things growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, dad was a cop, mom Democrat, dad voted Republican, just mm. always a split household, always mm -hmm. challenging ideas, which was great. Uh, 
when I was 19 or 20. Uh, I lived with a black man from New Orleans, wow. uh, a, a Hispanic man from Waterloo, mm -hmm. and and a and a white Catholic young man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was our house. And you want to talk about perspective? Right. Holy cow! Mm -hmm. Some of the conversations, some of the some of the things that were happening in our home, my eyes were opened up real quick right. to, to what the world was actually like. And it was yeah. And I don't know if it's a red pill or the blue pill, but whichever one that makes you open up your eyes. Yeah, my perspective, my eyes were open. My perspective was changed. Yeah, perception is reality. And um, I f the, the sooner we can get out of the reality that was shown to us, our, our environment, or what we was brought up in, at, you know, the sooner we can see other people's realities, our, our perspectives, I feel like the faster we can grow. What I find interesting is, especially living in Iowa, um, the 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 black population is is fairly low. So growing up in a white dominant culture, even, you know, that's America as a whole, but especially in Iowa, where um, you don't have access to a lot of different diversity or training, and things like that, it's kind of hard to see um, how growing up in this limited perspective where, I mean, I've stayed in small, smaller uh, white communities where um, there's no black people or where there's maybe one or two black families that moved and it's a whole story behind it and everybody know who they are, right? Mm -hmm. um, but to only grow up around people who look like you, talk like you, walk like you, like the things you like. Um, it is a cultural shock. I can imagine, like you said, like, wow, you know, <laughs> being, you know, living with a, a black man, a Catholic man and a Hispanic man, it expands us. And what I find is when you only grow up and the only thing you know is like what's, comfortable to you or the traditions you were taught or the way your family or your community did things when you get around other people we have the tendency to judge right or wrong based on our own experience because we don't have anything else to bounce it off mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. we only can bounce it off of what we know we compartmentalize we create these little boxes in our mind and we kind of live out of that truth or that reality and then when you you know, step out of that and you come into some new truth, it's just natural for us to compare it to something that we already have a grid mm. for, understanding for. And um, the thing about cultures and people are, it, it's all different. And because it's different doesn't necessarily make it wrong. But I think the white evangelical church has done a good job at, you know, um, creating this superiority that this is the way this is how it was done. This is how you do it. And if it doesn't look like this, then it's not right. And I think that's where the big problem comes in. And like you alluded to earlier, by us admitting that these issues are really happening and this is what's really going on, almost sounds like, and it does, and it has to happen if like reconciliation is going to be there that you got to admit your wrongs. Mm -hmm. We haven't been doing it right. We haven't gave room for you to have your own God given perspective because the Bible is living. 
the word is living, what it says to me, it might say something totally different to you, even though we can <clears throat> view this passage, we can read this passage. Still, that's the beauty of God and our own individuality and uniqueness is that he created us all differently. And he gives us all room to have that perspective, but to shut my perspective down because it looks a little different than yours and deem yours right and mine wrong isn't right. And I don't feel like we can move forward until people can come to the table and at least acknowledge, man, I hear you. Right. I get it. I understand. That's awesome. We need that. How can we use that? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Laura has this saying and she got it from uh, Dr. John Perkins with a uh, Christian community development association that says uh, something along the lines, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to probably bomb it, but <laughs> I think I'm going to get to the point. Um, if you go in thinking that you're only there to help people, then you, you miss the point. But if you go in thinking that I can learn and these mm. people can help me, then we grow together. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's and something along them lines. It mm -hmm. is. It and that's uh we we lead team short term mission trips to Jamaica every year mm -hmm. and which is a whole different community, community of deaf people. Mm. And talk about a whole new perspective on hearing, listening, seeing. Right. And that's one of the fundamental parts of that that uh helping without hurting curriculum is mm -hmm. we come in as learners. Right. We're not coming we're not coming in that's the Messiah complex. We're not right. coming in as you know, riding on a white horse, saving the world. We're actually coming in to learn, mm -hmm. to learn from you, to learn with you, to learn alongside you. And, and if you can't come in with that humble posture, right, then it's going to be impossible. It takes a level of humility because you're walking and assuming that you have the right way and somebody else doesn't have the right way. Right. And they could do the same thing, right? Like, because yeah. that's, that's the, the, I mean, they're growing up in a Jamaican culture and a deaf culture, two things that I don't know much about, mm -hmm. right? And then we go... And if we, if we go thinking that we're going to teach them a certain way, then, right. you know, so that's, I mean, that's been the biggest learning for me in those trips has been, I'm going to come in and like learn from, from these people. And I actually have left feeling like at first, like we're going on a mission trip to go serve and do something. And I felt mm. like, whoa, they served me. Like I was the mission. They were the people teaching me something new about actually what what does it look like to follow Jesus or you know what is what does loving each other actually look like and, right and it looks different in other countries and, and in different communities mm -hmm. than it, it does here for sure and it's 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 realer it's more authentic and I like judgment keeps coming to my mind we are so judgmental mm -hmm. um and probably for a a, a, a lot of reasons. Um, but I think the more we can kind of set aside what makes us different mm. and and start really honing in on what makes us alike and how we're similar, I think we'll grow and get a lot further along when it comes to, you know, like racism in, in America. And the sad mm. part is I don't I don't think that it'll stop existing. Right. It won't. Right. As long as there's sin in the world. As long as there's sin in the world. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we can undo, we can undo some things. And I, and I think on a bigger level, in the grand scheme of things, will it stop? Nope. I don't believe so. Not until Jesus comes back. 
But I think as individuals and as communities, we just got to stand together. I, I didn't necessarily care for white people as a kid. And I didn't grow up with a lot of white friends. I, I had a couple, but they were poor like me. So it wasn't no divide. But I didn't have, you know, typically even now when I go to, you know, houses and stuff like that, I'm like, man, this is nice. You know, <laughs> just totally different lifestyle. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like when, you know, when you raise like that and, you know, this is you just don't think nothing of it. We take so much for granted. And it isn't until you do a mission trip. Right. Or until you go somewhere and you see how people really live and you got to kind of step in their shoes and see the world, how they see the world that you realize I got it good. Like the stuff I complain about, these people don't even mention like. The stuff they worry about, I couldn't even imagine having to worry about the things that they worry about, you know? And I felt like I needed that perspective. I needed to see a bigger vision of what life could look like. I needed to go around people who live different than I lived, even maybe even better, not morally or like family dynamic wise, not better in that sense, but just, you know, the other side of life and understand and learn other people's traditions and you know foods and um mm -hmm. you know stuff like that because it helped me think what was possible because i needed to get outside my bubble and my little personal circle just as much as i feel like people white people who grew up in their own personal circle and bubble need to get out as well and experience something else yeah yeah and not just uh wow i have it so good so a lot of times it's Believing the lie that I have it so good. That's what we've experienced. But that's a whole nother podcast. So we we kind of had this goal of 30 minutes. We've already destroyed that, which is great. <laughs> so hopefully you're listening and thinking, well, it's been longer than 30 minutes. How can that be? Uh, it's true. But we have a couple of important questions that we kind okay. of want to turn the corner with. One of the big things that we're hearing from the students in our community and the young adults in our community at BASIC is tangibly what are some next steps what can i do to be listening learning to engage in a different community what are some practical next steps or ways that our students can get involved um and be a part of the solution and not be ignorant to the problem some some practical steps so there's always something going on in, in the community there's always events there's always groups there's a, a a lot of an amazing um organizations out there that's doing good work um if you kind of looking to serve um i really like what uh habitat for humanity is doing in, in the walnut neighborhood um they've created a, a coalition of of different agencies coming together to do some community development work in regards to housing. And that kind of came out of Laura Hoy listening to this community. This probably used to be one of the worst communities on the east side of Waterloo. I used to sell drugs in the neighborhood. I know that the, the drug rate um, and the crime rate was pretty high um, for a long time. And um, throughout the years of of my church actually being active in the community. So my pastors, George and Judy Marshall at Harvest Vineyard Church, just from them going out pray, prayer walking in the community, 
They moved in the community. They became neighbors with the people in the community. They started doing life and serving people in the community. And um, from that, it, it's brought about a lot of just transformation mm-hmm. through relationships that occur organically and naturally. And as they were listening, one of the things that the the neighbors said was they wanted housing and they needed um, like home improvement. So from that, from actually listening to what the people in the neighborhood wanted that came about, um, I would say that you have to um, just go to events. There's a lot of different events and, and listening meetings. So it, it just looks like just showing up and being a fly on the wall and getting to know the hearts of the people who are already doing work mm-hmm. um, along those lines of whether if it's working with youth for like, so like for me, um, I'm a director of the Hail Mary project. Um, I know with COVID right now, it's a, it's a little different and a lot of agencies who work with youth um, like the boys and girls club that aren't letting volunteers in, but there's lots of volunteer opportunities for people at the Hail Mary project or at the boys and girls club um, in Waterloo that they could serve and do, you know, be a part of the solution in the most natural way. Um, and then we also have a Christmas in Walnut in the Walnut neighborhood and that's mm-hmm. through Orchard Hill. That's a great way. Um, I've participated in that a couple of years and it's just that one way that you can, you know, be a part of bringing joy to uh, someone's life. Uh, we got the Jesby Cosby Center in Waterloo. Uh, they're a, a organization that's been a staple in the community for a long time. You got uh, EMA, they help out with rental assistance, um, lights, sometimes food donations. Um, we got the Black Historical uh, Museum. They're always hosting events. And as believers, I feel like we got to get better <laughs> at working with churches. So, you know, a, a next step could be church explore, go to some predominantly black churches and get mm-hmm. cultured. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be different, you know, and you'll feel the way. Now, I can't say, I think most churches will be accepting of you when you go for sure. So I encourage you to go. But if you get the, um, who are you? Look, where did you come from? What are you doing here? You gonna know what it you feels like. You walk a mile like in your shoes. Yep. You walk yep. a mile in my shoes. Yep. You gonna know what it feels like to be black walking That's, in a community that don't look like mine. That's perspective. These are great, and I I wrote I wrote these down. Also, uh, Laura sent us a bunch of uh, great resources. Awesome. One of the things. Well, I heard you say a few things, but uh, thinking of our own kind of discipleship model, the blessed model. I heard you say that uh, George and Judy, they started by doing a prayer walk. Mm-hmm. And so for us, bless, begin with prayer. Mm-hmm. So start there. And then the second thing I heard you say was listen, which is, is the right. second part. Mm-hmm. Pray and then start listening. Knock on some doors, make some relationships, some connections. Uh, one of the good listening options here uh, that Laura shared with us, she shared some movies, some book resources. So I think we can link that in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people to take a look at. Yep. I also say, so, so do that, link that in the podcast, but like personally with your own relationship with God, as you sit and you soak 
and you ask God, like, take your prayers and your petitions before God. And if this is something you really want to know more about, if this is something you want to get involved in in a natural way, I would say take your prayers and your petitions before God and then listen and look for what he's showing you because he's going to bring people into your life. Mm -hmm. That's going to invite you in. It might be that random video in your YouTube feed. It might be that random story on your IG or your Facebook account. Um, It's going to come in a lot of different ways. And if we're not being mindful about listening and looking for what we pray for, then you'll miss it. Mm, That's very good. Wise. I feel like something that I was pulling out of some of the actionable steps you were listening to is is relationships. Like mm, I feel yes. like almost every single point that you made had something to do with get to know somebody or it's not just um it doesn't just stop at like I, I volunteered one day or one right. afternoon, but it's like who did I meet there and how can I continue a relationship right. and continue learning and, and doing something. So and I feel like that's a part of something that we value at yeah. basic is relationships. Yeah. Everything is story, everything is built on relationships and, and friendship with people. Yeah. So that's huge. And I think the thing that I know about relationships is that they take work. They so take there's work. nothing that we're going to do that's going to be helpful from our couch or from just sitting in our home. Like the, the other common thing with all of the things you listed was we have to go somewhere and do active. something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 That was the other part of Jordan, Judy. I imagine that that took some time, some years those prayer walks and developing those relationships. Yeah. They stayed in the neighborhood. I think they stayed in the neighborhood. Um, The church is like 17 years old. And I think they've been staying in the neighborhood for a majority um, part of that. And here it is now, you know, uh, 2019 is when the actual vision of what the people want to start manifesting. So it's going to take time and it does come through, um, relationships because Jesus, God is relational. Mm-hmm. And that's the spirituality in my walk that I think a lot of people shy away from or don't really tune into is the relational aspect of 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 the Father, right? And uh, Jesus Christ and um, having that relationship with the Holy Spirit. So like you said, you just got to go. You got to, you know, listen, you got to walk with people and we have to be intentional about building those relationships and they take work. And if that's something you're praying for, I really believe that God some way, somehow is going to start speaking to you and showing you how to go about having these conversations. And then we can sit down like we sitting down right Mm -hmm. now and we can put it on Mm -hmm. the table because everybody wants to grow. Everybody wants to learn. Like we are here to listen and you don't have to avoid that elephant that's in the room and you really do have to have good intentions and a pure heart because people are going to sniff you out. If you coming at me, like I'm just some project that you want to do because you feel like, Oh, this is what I should be doing. You know, like people are going to turn cold and they're not going to invite you in. So it has to happen in a more natural organic way. You just have to, you know, say, God, I'm willing, send me mm-hmm. and he'll have somebody there waiting. Just like when he sent the disciples out and he said, don't take nothing into the town or the city. You know, you just go with your gifts and I'm, I'm going to have somebody there that's going to take you in and that's going to help you out and show you the ropes. And there's it's no different today. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that goes back to that idea of like humbling yourself to mm-hmm. a learner perspective that I'm right. not going to go do this be- just because. I mean, we, we want to serve other people, right? But it's, mm-hmm. the goal isn't just so I can 
you know, get my volunteer hours in for the week. Right. It's so that Check I can something. actually learn and, and, and know people and have that deep relationship. Yeah. Right. That's good. Uh, last thing before we kind of wrap things up, um, you, you're about to kind of enter in a new, new part of your story. I right? know it's mm. sad, but exciting <laughs> at the same time. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's next for you and what you're excited about, how so, God's working in you. So I'm excited to kind of move to the next phase. So right now I work with kids and I work with kids because I was one of those kids and I realized the need that's there to have, you know, a positive male role model, but also someone who kind of, you know, was that kid who didn't have a dad or have that guidance. So to offer that in return, because, you know, God adopted me and, you know, treated me like his own son. Um, as an adult, uh, I served eight years in prison too. And I, and I knew how hard it was for me to transition back into society and to make better choices and decisions when it came to friends and, you know, like life and jobs and careers and, you know, women and all these other little different things. So I've had the opportunity to work for an organization called Harvest Academy is in Des Moines, well, right outside of Des Moines. And it's a two year live in transitional life skills academy um, for people in recovery. And what I really like about that is it's a, a therapeutic community. Therapeutic communities have been around for a long time. Um, they don't have any in Iowa, so um, it's a new idea, but they focus on leadership. They focus on integrity. They focus on, you know, helping guys regain their dignity that they lost from just the choices and decisions they made. Um, you know, they teach them how to work hard for what they want. They teach them 100 percent accountability, uh, how to take ownership um, for their life and for their decisions and I feel like as men, you know, we all need somebody that can see our blind spots that we can be held accountable by and have accountability to. Um, mm -hmm. And it's in that relationship, walking alongside people for these two years that really brings about like transformative lifestyles and, and relationships. So I'm happy that I can be that light um, in the darkness and also be an example of someone that, you know, changed their life. And I can't give credit to me because it had to be all God. It was mm -hmm. no way I was so far gone. Come on. And I, I'm still extremely like baffled that man, God, you use me mm. out of all people, you know, um, when everybody else just kind of cast me off and, you know, said that I would never make it. And, and, you know, like God was like, nope, you know, that's not your story. That's not how your story going to end. And, um, and I think that's all of us, if we accept the call and I really, you know, uh, feel privileged to be able to kind of be that example and that guy, because I realize it's not, it's not on me to change them because I plant seeds and I water seeds, but God is the God of the harvest you know, I'm just playing my little role and I'm doing what I feel God called me to do. And I just want to be as effective and as genuine and as authentic and as insightful and possible. And hopefully, you know, maybe something that say I do or I do 
these guys take it and run with it and they become a better father they become a better son they become a better brother they become a better worker they become a better man and um you know some of them go and accept jesus christ as their lord and savior so i'm excited about that <laughs> that sounds incredible. amazing yeah. yeah and i you know again we're this is a, a podcast there's no video here i i didn't expect to uh be ending the day with <laughs> tears in my eyes I get three three men here getting all teared up but yeah yeah cool. i i was in my mind thinking none of this is possible without the transformative no, power no, of man. jesus christ i mean mm. my story andrew's story your story uh without jesus we're nothing and so i'm grateful that that god got a hold of you and said here's here's the plan right and uh yeah be careful what you pray for like you were talking about <laughs> earlier uh so now yep. you're now you're moving and on to some exciting things it sounds a lot like what what jesus did with his disciples so right. we're gonna be praying for you and, mm -hmm. and and staying in touch uh this conversation will continue so thanks i appreciate that yeah, yeah. yeah. any last thoughts andrew just thanks for your, your time and thanks for being willing to come and have a conversation and share with us it's encouraging to me like um there's so much learning but also just you've got a, um, a gift of just encouragement <laughs> and truth and wisdom and so it's cool to hear from you and and be inspired by that and yeah. inspired to, to take more steps and to to keep um continuing the series been has been called can we talk and i feel like we're talking and that's good and I just feel like the the next chapter is what can we do? Like let's can let's keep do? going and and <laughs> keep talking, but also let's let's keep encouraging each other and learning. So yeah, this has been a great I don't know how long hour or so that, together, but yeah, felt like ten minutes. Felt like ten <laughs> minutes. Time does go yeah. by fast. Mm -hmm. Yep, and it, and it starts in the church, and I really love the idea of um, what you guys are doing because it's going to take that small few like maybe Laura Hoy was a catalyst right mm. and um you know you go against the grain and not everybody kind of shares that same perspective that you do but that's okay because you're doing it because this is what God has called you mm -hmm. this is what God has put inside you mm -hmm. and slowly but surely it seeps out and that gets on other people and once it gets on other people it's like that chain reaction right and then that's how we grow. So, um, yeah, I encourage y'all to keep doing it and don't be shy to have those conversations and mm -hmm. ask those questions and to, you know, go out your way to be intentional about, you know, like greeting somebody and getting to know somebody. And it might be a little bit awkward at first, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> they'll thank you for it later. Mm -hmm. Or you'll thank yourself later. Right. Right. So, yeah, be encouraged. That's good. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's my favorite so if verse. If you're listening and you're one of those one of those few, like Preston was talking about, get in touch with us. Let's talk. Let's talk. And uh, we want to want to help you. So thanks for for listening in, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have another another one out here soon. Yeah, that's great. Thanks again. Appreciate yep. it. You're welcome.